0: To me, it's approaching an issue and then trying to sort of drive it forward that people can engage with it and to use all the tools that we have at our fingertips. And I've learned a lot about social media and broadcast and print media and how all of it can combine to become a very, very powerful tool.
1: Hello, my name is John Higginson and I'm on a mission to revolutionise communications by focusing on the power of purpose. In this podcast series, I'm interviewing leading lights in the world of environmental and social good about how they communicate effectively with the public. This week I'm joined by Dominic Dyer, a wildlife protection campaigner, writer and broadcaster. A former CEO of the Badger Trust, Dominic found himself in the eye of the media storm for his role in the evacuation of animals from Afghanistan is policy advisor for the born free foundation and co-host of off the leash podcast i first met dominic three years ago during a japanese anti-whaling demonstration which higginson strategy provided media support for it was one of our easier jobs due to the fact that dominic had arranged for both the prime minister's father stanley and then girlfriend Carrie to be there more recently he's been involved in the operation to save alpaca geronimo the campaign to stop the slaughter of dolphins and whales in the Faroe Islands and has led a one-man attack on George Mombio for touting the environmental benefits of trophy hunting. Dominic, thank you very much for joining us. Not at all. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. First, let's just talk about, about the kind of controversy over the uh, your involvement and, and Operation Ark, uh, which was looking to rescue people and animals from Kabul last year the criticism being that you're putting animals ahead of humans. What was your role in that and why do you think it was important?
0: It was, you know, I, I didn't know Penn that well. We'd met on one or two occasions and, uh, you know, I'd just come off the back of that huge story around Geronimo the alpaca, as you've just mentioned, that became a massive story that we didn't quite expect, but it was just one of those stories over a summer period as we were emerging from a pandemic that I think really caught people's imagination. So that got a huge amount of media coverage and My partner, Michelle, who watches animal issues, as I do very closely, said to me, well, things are going very badly in Kabul, aren't they? And it looks like Afghanistan's going to fall. And what are you going to do to help Penn? And I looked at these tweets and they became increasingly concerning about him being there on this. I knew about Nasad. I knew about his work. I didn't realise he was still there. And the thought of trying to get him and his people and animals out hadn't really crossed my mind until you know, I reached out initially to Zach Goldsmith, who was a minister and a friend that I'd known in government for many years and out of government and said, listen, I've got this friend who runs this charity, can you help? And he came back to me quite quickly and said, listen, we've got lots of people we're trying to help, but I do fully understand the concerns, you know, about trying to do something and I'll see what I can do. And I didn't realise at the time that his boss, Dominic Rabb, was on a beach in Crete, not taking any calls, as we learn later on, saying, I'm not dealing with anything, including what's happening in Afghanistan. So Zak had quite a, an influence in that period of time to push this issue right up the top of the agenda in government and in Whitehall. And so things started to move quite quickly. Um, it became a huge story, though. I, I, it was a combination of concern about the animals, clearly, and the people. And I think that very dark period of time. Uh, similar to a degree, I think it's even greater now because of what's going on in Ukraine, which is incredibly distressing for everyone. But it was a, on a smaller scale. It was a similar thing, I think, with Afghanistan and that withdrawal. We were all sort of focused on what was happening and people felt powerless and they wanted to do something. And they got behind this Operation Art campaign we put together. I got Judy Dench and Ricky Gervais and a few people I knew to get behind it. And we went public with it. And I've got a very sort of proactive way of engaging in the media. And Penn was incredible from from Kabul. He was just becoming the mouthpiece, as so it were to the world of what was happening in that city. And he was getting so much media. And I was dealing with that on this end. I was just trying to deal with what were 24 hour requests that people to get access to him. And increasingly, I started to tell the story from this side and got more involved, obviously, in the political campaigning and lobbying side where I think it became controversial was because of the Ministry of Defence sort of entering into it late in the day and deciding they didn't necessarily like the, the level of public attention it was getting. What steps had been taken in government to help make this happen? We we'd got a billionaire in the US to basically provide half a million pounds for an aircraft, put it down on the ground. You know, we got commitments from the Prime Minister to get visas basically to get the 68 staff and their dependents out, which was incredible because they were nowhere near. An evacuation list. And and we got a huge social media campaign going, a massive media coverage. I think in that sort of August-September period, my my social media reach was over 17 million people, which in itself is incredible. Now, as a documentary being made about all of this. I suppose what really became controversial was, was, was not so much my position, because I was always very clear about reaching out to politicians to carry Johnson to the prime minister and his involvement. But most journalists I spoke to took it with a pinch of salt, going, well, you would say that maybe but we haven't got evidence to show he was directly involved so they, they sort of took it from me <laughs> and i was very clear about it but as time went on as you know we got leaks out of whitehall uh, initially in a in, in from a, as an official in the foreign office and then you know we've had leaks out of various other departments that supported what i was saying that the prime minister had been directly involved and did authorize it and that's what made it such a massive ongoing media story both in december and then again in january this year to the degree that it became a a significant political crisis moment, I think, for the Prime Minister around all the other things that, you know, have been going on about parties in Downing Street and and other things. Um, So to me, the Pets of Four People thing was was really just a a smokescreen. It was an, an opportunity for the Ministry of Defence to create a story to try and diminish what we were seeking to do. Um, it was about people and the animals. It was about the animal rescuers, and and I think that's the important part of the story that you know I've consist- consistently tried to get across in all the media interviews that I've done on this.
1: So that's interesting that you say that that came from the Ministry of Defence, you think, and not and not opposition. It, it's 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 them saying that it's people before, uh, sorry, pets before people. <laughs> Uh, and as you say there, these are aircraft that were never going to go to people anyway. And and, and, that, and that money for those aircraft was only built up on the back of this campaign, isn't yes,
0: it? Yes, it was. The half a million was provided by a billionaire in the US. We got approval to put it down at the end of the, of the whole withdrawal process. So it wasn't going to get in the way of the evacuation of people. And the hold of the aircraft was only suitable for animals. So you couldn't put people in there as a pressurized hold. And, you, and that's the way it was. The idea was to put people on the plane but because of the problems we have with getting them through Taliban checkpoints, it wasn't possible. They had to come out through a land corridor two weeks later into Pakistan and from there into the UK. But I think the most distressing thing about the whole debate around now has been that the focus has been primarily on the animals, including from many respected journalists I've worked with over the years and, and, and people in broadcast media, because it became a, something you could hit the prime minister with if you just brought the animals in, or you could hit his wife with. But if you started to talk about the people, it was more of a humanitarian mission, which it was. And I think I've always said if the prime minister was fault, you just didn't embrace it at the end of August and actually say what it was. It was about helping vets, their nurses and their families to get out. And by the way, we took some of the animals that they cared for out with them as well. And that's a good story. And it should yeah. have remained a good story instead of being a political football that it's become between the Ministry of Defence, Downing Street, the, the Foreign Office and, and, and the opposition parties to a degree.
1: And and has that story coming out and and, and you talking about the Prime Minister's role, has that damaged at all your relationship, your your good relationship that you've got with his wife Kerry?
0: I think it was always difficult with Carrie because you you, you had to go back, you know, to the badger cull issue, because that's the, the sort of main point where this became a, a, an issue of scrutiny about her conduct and behavior as his partner. You know, I've always been very, very supportive of the idea that she should have strong opinions on animal welfare issues and be able to continue to have those in Downing Street and that she should be able to talk to her husband, as he now is, uh, about those issues. Ultimately, though, it's for the prime minister to make decisions about policy. But because I went into Downing Street in 2019, I spoke to her about the badger Cole. She in turn briefed Boris Johnson on the back of information I discussed with her and supplied. He in turn then intervened to stop the badger Cole policy going ahead in Derbyshire, which led to a judicial review in the high court. This became a big political problem, you know, well before the Nowsad situation blew up. My view has always been that, you know, I'm very open about the contacts I have with politicians, you know, be it people like Zach Goldsmith, be it people like Carry Johnson, be it with opposition figures. And I've always been that way, uh, you know, and, and that's the way I feel comfortable talking about the work I do. And that's probably why there's been so much scrutiny to a degree about now, is because I've been so open about it. But equally, I believe in that's a problem in our government anyway, because if you don't have truth and integrity, and let's be clear, the biggest problems that Boris Johnson has is a lack of trust, truth and integrity, which could lead, you know, despite the fact that, you know, international events have probably given him a bit of a sort of longer period of office, uh, he's still in trouble. And these issues are going to come back to haunt him. And I think, you know, I've been very clear, if anyone ever said to me about the way I work, I think trust, integrity and the truth matters, really matters. Uh, And that's why I've been so clear about what actually happened, because if, if people doubt the, the decisions I took or why I did it, then they can do that but they should at least know what the government did and what I was lobbying them to do. You know, that to me is very important. And I've actually had quite a lot of people who I might not necessarily agree with politically who've come back to me in recent months and said, whatever you think of Dominic Dyer, isn't it good that we have someone that's being so truthful about it and not trying to hide what's going on? Because that's such a big problem in our political system. So that mm. to me is is the final word on this, I think. So I've got a piece, I'm, the mail are going to be running in, in a few days time about the Pets Before People issue because it's almost been turned on its head with Ukraine. Uh, Because in Ukraine, we've now had a million people leave in in six days and there's millions more coming. We know this is the biggest, most dreadful event in post-war history, probably, to a degree that affects all of us. But so many of them have brought their companion animals with them because there's such a high ownership of companion animals. And the dogs and cats have become a massive part of this story and the images. And the countries like Poland, Romania, Hungary and others have had to basically waive any restrictions on bringing animals in. And they were saying to the British government, you should be looking at doing the same. So the argument I'm making is that actually it was always the case in Afghanistan, too, that these were companion animals, animals that were terribly important to the people that had looked after them, the veterinary teams but equally very important to the soldiers and others that were trying to get them home. You know, the relationships had built up in a war zone. And we're seeing all of that come out in in what's happening in Ukraine at the moment as well. So I think that sort of pets before people argument to me is a a false one. It's it's about animals and people and the relationship they have, which is critically important in good times, but even more important when we're seeing the terrible scenes that are playing out in in Ukraine at the moment.
1: (laughs) Do you you think your openness and honesty uh, may have infringed on your kind of ability to do the same thing again in, in, uh, you know, to get Zach or others to pick up the phone again if you're if you are being open and honest? Possibly.
0: But equally, it's I think it's increased my influence and my ability to get things done. I don't think anyone would ever underestimate my ability to, you know, campaign. Even people like Ben Wallace, who might disagree with me, would never underestimate that. And I think in some ways, because of the way this story has played out, I think I've also shown that, you know, the power of social media, for example, which we're seeing play out in the Ukraine conflicts, You know, this is a social media war as much as a physical war on the ground. And I think these things really are very, very powerful. Governments cannot ignore them. So in the last few days, I've been very much involved in that discussion about as to whether DEFRA should change its rules on companion animals coming in and the media are picking up on that. And I know the pressure is growing on them because other member states of the EU have taken those decisions. And I think that goes in line with the, the pressure to say that we should just let more refugees in, in what is a very difficult position. On the other side, it never finished with me, with the 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 Now's that operation, because we took out another, you know, 82 people. These were from the, the Mayhew charity that are still in Islamabad. So we went back and that's what I think strengthened my position. When people said to me it was all about pets before people or your relationship with Carrie, no, to me, it was about the people and we didn't get them all out in August. So we went and raised over 300,000 pounds and actually went back with another private rescue operation to bring vets, their families, but also ex-military personnel, diplomats and others out, high risk people, which we basically smuggled out of Afghanistan without any government assistance. And we've had to you know, maintain them in Islamabad and we're now working to get them into Britain or Canada. So to me, if, I'm probably more of a humanitarian as much as I am, and I'm a welfare campaigner now, but I think no one could doubt my commitment to sort of, you know, be in that place. So, so I'm comfortable with where I am in that sense. And, and I hope every politician
1: understands that. Great. Well, look, um, I think the um, the kind of link between these campaigns and, and and I think we found that, you know, so often when we look at a animal campaign, there you are as a kind of puppet master behind some of these uh, campaigns. Um is it is it more than just your influence within government, clearly your your uh, friends with Zach Goldsmith and that's very useful and your friends with Carrie uh, Johnson, which is also useful. Are there other things you think that kind of link these things together when you when you uh, look at these campaigns?
0: I think a lot of it is the passion you might have and your ability, you know, you know me, I speak a lot in public. I have prior to COVID. I haven't done that much in recent years, but we're beginning to get out again as we all are in the real world. Um, but I think there's a, there's a, a recognition that you know I can sort of be a powerful voice, be it on the street corner or be it in in a television studio or doing an interview via Skype or in real person time. And the one thing I've built up, I think, is a recognition within journalists and politicians and others that if I say something, people will take note of it. So I think it's it's it, to a degree, it's it's the message, it's the style you deliver the message in, it's your passion and belief in what you're doing that can make a difference. And uh, I tend to really. I, I throw myself into something because I truly believe it needs to be done. I'm not just doing it because it's just, oh, we need to do it this way. So, you know, I care passionately about trying to do something about the Faroe Isles, Whale and Dolphin slaughter issue. Mm. Um, and I wanted to bring that back to a degree with the discussion about the trade relationship we have with those islands, which has grown significantly since the Brexit deal we made in 2019 with them. And to say to the British government, we have leverage to stop this, so we must do something about it. So it. it to me, it's about approaching an issue and then trying to sort of drive it forward that people can engage with it and to use all the tools that we have at our fingertips. And I've learned a lot about social media and broadcast and print media and how all of it can combine to become a very, very powerful tool. And as I said, at the moment, we've got a documentary being made about Operation Arc, which, you know, I hope will sort of uncover all of that, because I think that's an important part of the way I am and the way I do the work that I do in that sense.
1: Well I think it's uh, I'm very glad that you say that about passion because often I have uh uh for you know Higginson strategy the communications agency that we um uh, that I uh, uh, uh founded we often have people coming to us saying look how do I how do I get my my organization or company in the, in, in more more in the news how do we get more cu- cu- covered and I always say well look what do you care about what do you what do you want to change and there's no point in you suddenly saying uh, you want to be passionate about Black Lives Matter. If Black Lives Matter, if, if that's not something you're actually passionate about, because it will show through, it will be in inauthentic. So there's no point in just jumping on the latest uh, thing that people care about. It should be about what you personally care about. And I think that's really good. Uh, talking about the Faroe Islands, so you've managed to gain so far 82,000 signatures on a government petition calling for trade sanctions uh, with the Faroe Islands on the back of the slaughter of dolphin and pilot whales there. Yep. It's often very difficult to get signatures on petitions these days because there's just so many flying about and there's been criticism of kind of clicktivism. How do you manage to get the the uh, message out on something like that?
0: It's difficult, you know, and I've been talking to Chris Packham today because we've got 18,000 to go and only 20 days to do it. And and he's as concerned as I am that cutting through now because of Ukraine is becoming very hard uh, because it's just sort of you know enveloping everything as we fully understand. Um, so we're looking at how we can get it over that 100,000. I think these government petitions can be useful, but I think they are getting increasingly difficult to get to that level. This one has been particularly hard because at times, you know, I've had restrictions put on my Twitter feed and others have because of the the, the images we share because they're graphic and they're upsetting. And the social media companies, you're challenging them. I had to take it up the line to Twitter and say that, you know, you are basically restricting my account because I'm sharing images which you say are graphic and are considered gratuitous gore. Um, But the rules are that if they were shared by the people that were killing the animals and they considered it for sustainable harvesting of food, they could share them. But if I was sharing them saying it was wrong, I would be the one that would be restricted. Now that to me makes little sense at all. And I I went to to Twitter's senior people and I said that we're making a documentary about Operation Ark. And I said in that period of time, I reached over 70 million people on Twitter and actually helped lift all these people out of the country. Because of what we did with you, otherwise this would not have happened. You know, if I didn't have the reach, I wouldn't have got the, the impact that we had in that campaign, no question about it. And I said, but but what you've done to my account now, if I was in the summer, it was it wouldn't happen. Those people wouldn't have come out of there because the, I couldn't have reached them, which I think triggered with them. And I said, we're making a documentary about this, and you don't want me to be too critical of you, do you? So just reopen my account again, which they did. But the point I'm trying to make is that it, it can be difficult when you're doing the sort of work I do on animal issues because a lot of the stuff we're doing, it could be about dogs being, you know, I've recently been involved in trying to raise concerns about the level of killing of street dogs in Turkey, which is a, an Erdogan policy that has sort of pushed out onto killing tens of thousands of dogs in the most horrible circumstances. And again, some of the imaging has been really difficult. And you're also pushing back against governments. The Faroese government have employed PR companies to look at social media and then to lodge multiple complaints with the trigger systems you're familiar with to try and shut those accounts down it's what they're doing. And I can be on that, and we've seen similar with Turkey, you know, the Turkish government have been very active in pushing back if anyone was saying, don't go on holiday to Turkey because, you know, of all of this terrible action that's being undertaken at a state and sort of, you know, municipal level, killing these dogs. So yeah, you, you, it is difficult campaigning in some of these areas trying to use all these tools because you're often taking on some very strong vested interests in government and industry. But I believe you've just got to do that. You've got to keep going, you know, if we're going to change anything, to be honest,
1: John. How how important for you is a is a strong communication strategy when you when you start off campaigning? Do you start with a communication strategy or do you just run out there going, let's just do this?
0: Yeah, I, I think, you know, th- you've got to understand what you're doing. When what made I think Geronimo, for example, a big story for me was was Helen McDonald. The minute you met Helen MacDonald, you understood her story that she owned this alpaca and she'd fought with Defra for five years and lawyers and millions of pounds had been spent. And it was a real David and Goliath story. And to me, it triggered that sort of view that this woman had a, a, a very strong case to say this animal should not be killed. And that this was a sort of big bullying government department, we're not gonna listen to her. And in the end, as you know, they dragged this animal away in front of the media mm-hmm. and, and killed it in the most horrible way. And we've been found that from the, the, the basis of those post-morms, it never had TB. Um, So to me, it was about her. Once I got to know her and work with her, then I was going to throw my full weight into it. To a degree, the same with Penn Farthing, because the courage and determination of the man (laughs) to get his people and animals out of that city was incredible. And it was inspiring bit like, you know, what we're seeing with President Zelensky in, in Ukraine. There are certain people that lift you and inspire you. If Zelensky got on the phone to me today and said, Listen, I need you Dominic to do some comms, I'd do it tomorrow <laughs> straight away because mm-hmm. I'd believe the man was was right in what he was doing and what he believed in. So I think I think you've got to believe in, in what you're campaigning on, be it the individual or be it the cause. Is there a strategy? Well would I think you, you you know, if I looked to Geronimo, we we basically thought we had a story that wasn't, you know, too complex for most people. Bovine TB testing, very technical and all that. It was more about an animal, the right to live without being killed unnecessarily, and a government to force its death, which really triggered with people. There were wider things we could then talk about, which are relating to badgers and bovine TB, the things that I campaigned on for years. But you had to simplify the story into that David-Goliath battle. With Penn, it was very much, you know, this was the right thing to do, to get these animals, to get these people out. And, and he was fighting for that. And we had to push the government to get behind it. Um, and, you know, with Penn, what I did was set up a campaign called Rescue the Animal Rescuers. That was the start of it, Was the idea being that you could talk about the people that were rescuing and supporting animals mm-hmm. in this very difficult country particularly women that could no longer do that if the Taliban took over. And then you trigger that with saying, let's bring the animals they care for out as well. It was a strong argument that I think connected with people. So I, I tend to do that. in when it comes to campaigns, I think about what the trigger points are. With regards to pharaohs, I just thought, well, if we're making trade deals and, with, and you know, at the moment, five hundred and fifty million pounds, the benefit of that deal for the pharaohs to Britain, selling goods to us whereas we only sell about 50 million pounds the other way so it hugely enriches the island but at the same time they're using this increased wealth to do something that as we know is barbaric and medieval and there's no justification for it people do understand that and they do get angry about it so you, you're trying to cr- create a connection
1: yeah uh, so and that's, that's what very, i tend to do <coughs> that's very clear there and, and and you often find the story behind the story which i think is is good there and you're and you're finding in animal stories you're finding a human human interest story hidden behind an animal story and in statistics based stories you're kind of pulling away the statistics and yeah. looking to a very real uh, emotional story that people can 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 get in contact uh, kind of feel passionate about. I
0: think How it has been, had a trigger sometimes you've had this sort of debate about the politics of animals
1: you know I did a interview with spectator
0: tv for a front page piece they did just as the, the nows operation came to an end where they just said people like me had pushed it too far that they were putting animal rights to a point where it was above human rights and, and and that to me was trying to say no the two come together that that's that's what's so
1: important i think in these areas great and um finally to to what kind of tips would you give um to anyone who was looking to to create a purpose fueled campaign?
0: I think, firstly, you need to think about what is it you're trying to get across in terms of your key messaging and what your audience is as well. Is there a particular trigger point in an emotional terms that they will connect to and stay with you on? Is there a level of sort of anger you can generate about a particular issue that you can, you can sort of focus down, you know, rather than just people shouting, they can actually focus it and say, Yes, I understand what you're saying. So at the moment, if we are bringing in large numbers of refugees from Ukraine, why shouldn't they be able to bring their companion animals with them? If they've gone all that way to save them and bring them out, then most people in this country can connect with that and go, yeah, exactly. I wouldn't want to leave my dog or cat either. I'd want it to be with me, particularly if I've been parted from my husband or my partner who's having to go out and fight a war. So straight away, you've got those trigger points of emotion that attach to the issues. I think that's really, really important. I think also just understand that you know, I think a lot of people underestimate how quickly things move on social media these days. You can't afford not to be part of this debate, but it moves so, so quickly. A lot of the media stories that I've handled or developed have come from social media. So, you know, you, you, you push something become, and then it becomes huge and then everyone wants to talk to you about it. I remember at the start of Operation Arc, I could not really get journalists that interested. A week in, I couldn't stop them ringing me you know, where they said, oh, I've been wanting to talk about it. Yeah. So clearly we created something that they could no longer ignore. Yeah,
1: I Fantastic. think that,
0: that's part of what you're seeking to do.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Dominic Dyer, policy advisor to the Born Free Foundation, co-host of the environmental podcast Off the Leash, an environmental campaigner extraordinaire. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Higginson of Higginson Strategy. Thanks for listening.